social media feels strange. I think we had this chat once, but just briefly before. Um, but, you know, whenever I feel like that, I just remind myself of the incredible connection it enables. You know, as you said, you can have conversations with people all over the world. <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah, it is incredible. I, I have had a good experience with using it in a way that I feel has been native for me and that it's helped me to meet people and have genuine relationships, but that's not always the case, you know, and it also depends on, I think, what you're using and what the intention is for what you're doing. Yeah, <clears throat> no, I do agree with that. I think that's another thing over the course of, I think we're similar age, um, you know, you've seen it change so much. So we were, well, certainly I was of that generation when it was all, you know, we had life before technology. <laughs> And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, certainly before social connection like this over over platforms. Um, and it is fascinating to see how it's changed and what it facilitates and how I'm intrigued by whether the culture is reflected in the, you know, the, the platforms or in the social connection or vice versa, or whether platforms reflect how we actually are moving towards how we relate and what we use it for. So I think it's curious that it's brought about a lot more you know, proximity for people, but at the same time, um, it can, you know, create distance as well because we're not interacting in that visceral sense, you know, with all the stuff that goes on when we're face to face. What do you, uh, if anything, what do you miss about the time before all of this stuff, social media and this technology? What do you miss? Um, I can only I can only use the word. <laughs> it seems a strange, maybe sounds strange, but peace. Um, and I'm you know I'm somebody very kind of remote from social media, but even still, it feels intrusive. You know, it, I I spend a lot of time at a computer screen. Uh, you know, not so much on my phone because I don't I haven't really gone mobile so much in that respect. Um, I managed to to avoid that a little bit but yeah there was somehow I like the days when you picked up the phone you know if you had an issue to deal with and you phoned a company because there was a question about a bill or uh, and I think particularly from a work point of view you know when I was doing working in management consultancy you could you could literally genuinely call up a company find them in the in a directory uh, find a telephone number call them and speak to somebody, you know, or ask to speak to somebody and they would call you back. So I miss conversation, I think I'd say. Conversation and that feeling of space where, uh, sorry, peace, where there isn't all the white noise of what's going on in the feeds and on this platform and that platform. And uh, a slight incongruence, I feel it, it mm -hmm. kind of disintegrates us a bit because our focus is scattered across all lots of sort of different places or spaces where when it was just the phone and a and a book something written um just seemed much more peaceful to me yeah it's it's actually well said i think peace is a a very good way of putting it i, I like yourself i remember when these things didn't exist and I wonder what that must be like for people who have grown up with not having what we had. You know, maybe they, they don't miss it because they never had it, but 
I think there was something very quaint about it. And um, although I would miss out on meeting people like yourself, on some other level, it was just it was just less chaotic. And it felt a little more at ease, you know, when you could, you'd, you never had to worry about people keeping their phones with them when you had a meeting with somebody in person or, you know, things like that. It was just like, if you sat down with somebody, you just talked to them. There was very few distractions at that point. Yeah. And I think that did create more of a, more presence. I think it must inevitably, you know, we were more present just by virtue of the fact, as you said, Darian, there, there simply weren't the distractions there. Uh, but then I, I'm fascinated by how, you know, the the change over time and going back to your, you know, you said it's intriguing for those people who have, who have known nothing different. So of a generation where this has only ever been normal, we can relate to that in that we cast our mind back to, you know, earlier generations for us and think, how did they, what did it feel like, you know, to not have motor cars and, and you know, go back mm-hmm. beyond that, not to have telephones. Uh, and I get a slight sense because I, w- whenever I use the sat nav, I think, what happened? We used to read a map. You know, I've still got my old kind of bent up and gnarled copy of my road atlas in my car because we used to read maps to just to work out where we were going. Uh, and that skill atrophies. You know, it's like I. I'd think now, oh dear, if I had to go somewhere and think about where I'm going and look at a map and plan the route. And then, of course, we used to pull over all the time because, oh no, where am I now? I need to check the map again. <laughs> I think, oh my oh. gosh, I remember that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and could I we don't do miss it that now? though because I, I was terrible with directions before like navigation. I used to always like, get lost and stuff. I was like, oh, this is ter- I'm glad it's- I actually have GPS now. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. Um, although it does, I do think there's that thrill of, of being tested, you know, kind of testing yourself yeah. to know that you're competent. And I do, I think that's a really interesting thing going back to what you were just, you know, you sort of said earlier about the younger generations is in a way when everything is facilitated so really effortlessly you don't have you're not tested at all so you miss out on that feeling of knowing you're competent um and you can work something out and you know when everything's worked out for you now by algorithms and ai and technology uh, and i do wonder if that's contributing you know partly to this to the to the emptiness some of the younger generation feel. Yeah. Yeah, I think you might be right about that. Actually, I'm reading a good book that you might be interested in. It's called um, Weapons of Math Destruction. Oh, say that again. There was a bit of a crackle. Oh, sorry. Uh, Weapons of Math Destruction. Ah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, love that title. Yeah, right. It's all about like algorithms and how algorithms, um, it's the dark side of it in a sense of like algorithms for like home loans or for hiring people and jobs, things of that nature are often created. And even the creators often don't even know how to explain the algorithm to people. But then the algorithm makes a decision on like, okay, this person 
Well, for example, in some algorithms, they, you know, employers will try to run a person's credit history to see if they pay their bills on time and things using an algorithm and determining whether this person is a hireable person based off of um, how, if they pay their bills on time, what's their credit score, and then using that metric primarily as to whether they will hire a person, um, which can be really uh, a weird thing, actually, to determine whether somebody should be hired or not, you know? Yeah, I mean, that is just going, diving straight into the realm of big data here, aren't we, Darian? I mean, that's the... Oh, yeah. Yeah, fascinating. And one... It, on that note, um, so, you know, Europe has a lot, especially our relationship between the UK and Europe over recent years, but uh, they, I don't know if you've heard the term GDPR, uh, so that's the European mm -hmm. Data Protection. It was the, the kind of the new generation of data regulation that they brought out some year, several years ago now um, and mandated that any company that trades with or sells anything to an EU citizen has to comply with this new law. And what um, I, because I delved into it a bit, and something I thought was commendable about it is they actually give the right back to the into the citizen, so the data owner, if you like, to challenge a decision that's made by an algorithm or a computer. So you know, classic example, if you if you're applying, because all banks now. Finance has been run on algorithms now for years. So if you apply for any type of financial product and you're <clears throat> refused on the grounds of a computer making the decision, you can actually challenge that under this new law, um, which I think is encouraging because wow. I think we need that back wow. in this world of big data. That's incredible, actually. Mm. That. Well, I think that we're we're the pendulum swings real hard on one side, and then now what I'm seeing is the pendulum is swinging back on the other side or like, okay, what about the, the data for the consumer? Should the consumer be paid for their data? I mean, companies are buying people's data and profiting off them. Shouldn't the consumer get paid? And now you're saying that, you know, citizens are challenging decisions by algorithms. I think that's a good thing, actually. Absolutely. And I think it's a, uh... It's interesting as well to how change. I don't, I'm someone I kind of always am not impatient in a sort of neurotic sense, but it comes from that sense of you just know how how it could be different, and it's frustrating. You know, we're kind of stuck here, and it could be different so easily, and that you're always reminded that change, you know, is, is evolutionary, um, and cultural change takes time. But at the same time, there are sometimes a point when so this pendulum, as you said, swings so far that it's just a a disruption that has to start to swing it back quite or or stop the momentum quite suddenly. Uh, and I think we're just seeing kind of flavors and hints of that all over the the world in all sorts of really interesting ways. Um, you know, social change, and you think of so many uh, f extreme <clears throat> political regimes that are being questioned and called into, you know mini revolutions really so it's kind of yeah that that time of the individual taking back ownership where it's been we've been so robbed of it i think through through data and the the individual either as a unit of political influence you know how can i influence that person with all sorts of 
um, you know, very elaborate psychological manipulation to, in order to have that, have them give me my power. And then commercially, you know, you're, we're no longer human beings. We're just units of, of consumption. And how can we be most sold to? So I think, yeah, I think we're seeing a shift back. Hope <laughs> for me, it can't come too soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hopefully that's happening. Uh, you know, I wanted to transition a little bit into, uh, well, for me, I, I'd like to understand how things are, are going on, at least from that person's perspective. I know it's not the, obviously the entire uh, city, town or country's perspective potentially, but what's the political environment in the UK as we presently stand in your opinion? Yeah, so... Hmm. It's always slightly difficult because obviously political affiliation. I mean, I, I'm fairly agnostic. You know, I've never been wedded to any any dogma or any particular political view. Uh, so I can comment from a reasonably neutral position in that res respect. But I think the trend has been recently and there is a definite uh, um, concern. You know, I find myself talking to my friends and expressing this of a feeling that there's there's an agenda that we're not party to and that there's there's a strong autocracy forming um you know and we're meant we're meant to be the the we are the mother of the democracies and yet it doesn't feel that way now whether democracy is always a, a bit of an illusion anyway but the political climate is is quite i think fractured and certainly the whole you know issue of brexit and how that went spent 2 years and what it did to our parliamentary process and how the public then engaged with parliament and how we perceived it uh which i think there is a cynicism of this infiltration of manipulation through data and social media and, and targeted advertising and the leave the the leave europe campaign i think was pretty much the the pivot point because that was run in just more probably much more like the American presidential campaigns uh you know where the objective was almost without moral compass it didn't really matter and I, and Boris Johnson who was lead, led that campaign was always quite himself agnostic in terms of Europe he didn't have a strong view and he uh decided to simply back that campaign because he thought it could, would probably win. <laughs> uh, so I think right. that was a turning, yeah, that was an, a, a very much, definitely a turning point, you know, and that, that was all of the scandal with Cambridge Analytica and how much involvement was there from Facebook with, um, you know, subverting that or feeding that campaign in order for it to win. Um, and then Russian involvement as well. And that report has now finally come out and it did show that there was... Um, you know, some involvement. So I think the, there's a cynicism and for me a, a concern about that sense of really the individual, much like we're saying around data and other things, we, we don't really matter. It's power and how we can be manipulated in order to secure power. And that feels very, probably at the, the most intense it's ever been for us here in the UK. So I feel we're moving away from Have democracy we, on some level. Yeah, yeah. No, it, you're making me think about all these things. And the question that popped in my, in my mind is, 
have we started to, on some level, giving up on kind of the nobility behind values and uh, caring about other humans as human beings and having integrity and kindness? Have we spent a lot more time focusing on the the profit element or the commercialization consumption aspect of things? Gosh, Darren, I mean, absolutely. I think your question is so powerful and actually so, you know, pertinent as well that it's, a, it's <clears throat> you know, everything is interrelated and, and, and a whole and you can't have a shift in, you know, in that direction, say in the political spectrum without it being felt and mirrored in you know the individual level in in the human space spectrum so i think it's inevitable the soul dies and you know when when the disregard the when disregard for the soul and the deeper aspects of life you know the more um for want of a better term you know more spiritual and and uh emotional aspect when that is is ignored or What's I want a better word than that? Denigrated. You know, it simply becomes irrelevant to us, and what really matters is what we can what we can get out of these people. Then that, for me, that's reflected as a as a death of the soul. Um, and when we lose our soul, you know, when we lose connection with that, yeah, we we lose our, our that compass too. And I I do think there is very generally. Um, if you ask, going back to uh, what we were saying earlier about times past or earlier times, those things mattered more. And maybe it was because they were more visible, you know, because we all now are much less visible than we used to be. Um, and yeah, I, I think your question is is right. There is a, I wouldn't say it's a giving up because I don't think it's that intentional I think it's happening unconsciously. We unconsciously feel, mm. you know, desold, um, and that's for me is where we see these uprisings and these and people kind of saying, you know, actually, no, I don't, I don't, I won't give up. I won't. I want to fight this. I want not to be soul dead. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, Dr. Martin Luther King said many years back in the civil rights movement in the United States in the 60s or so, that we need a revolution of values. How do we get, how do we have that revolution where if we're not giving up, we're unconsciously ha- happening, how do we intentionally have a revolution of values where we make that a bigger priority in the sphere of our, our world? Well, there's two ways, I and mean, I've got two thoughts to answer to respond to that. One is the obviously having the having the awareness, and that's the that's the difficulty of it. If you're unconscious, if it's happening unconsciously, how do you be, get conscious and aware, awareness of it? Because once you are consciously aware of it, you then have a choice. You can then make the choice to respond or react or choose to value something. Um, there's obviously the whole zeitgeist of what's valued culturally and that pervades because just by you know virtue of the fact that that's the cultural norm so you then need disruptors and people who are courageous enough to challenge those social norms um you know if you like to lead a, a towards a different value and then there's 
all the vested interests <laughs> that want to close those voices down. So you're in that constant, you know, dilemma and battle. And I suppose that that's human history and, and always has been there. Um, I mean, I've got a I've got a, a different take on this, so I'd be really interested to see how what you what you make of this. So, um, I have a have a theory that if you like that, almost all if you if you look at all of the social ills and the pro- troubles we're facing modern in the modern world, I actually track that right back to a point in not not that long ago. It was only three yeah three hundred plus years ago where we decided we were better than and separate from other animals because that was, you know, it was the continuum of evolution that we don't, uh, you know, we recognize the physiological continuum, but we're different by um, divine right. And that man is separated from or disintegrated from earth, nature, other animals because of our superiority. Um, and with that, our values, the, if you like, the foundation of values became extremely small and narrow because the values then all relate to human beings. Um, so we you know, become completely human-centric. And the human unchecked or dis, disintegrated, disconnected from the if you what we were talking you know the values that the earth system inherently holds within it to me that's that was where you know we made a, a it, that was a critical juncture and i find it really uh, well i'm hopeful and optimistic about a resurgence of the indigenous cultures and indigenous wisdoms um particularly the native american you know voices who are being brought into the into the environmental, the conservation and climate change movement to speak to us of those times where we were still and lived from within the whole and how that creates the structure of a, the foundation of a value system that is not human-centric. And so the human then never gets into this, you know, basically completely out of control uh, ego and id that we live collectively today. Um, so, you know, to go back to answering your question, for me, it's restoring, it's going back to that very foundation. And if we reintegrate, and I use that intentionally rather than reconnect, because the word connect, in order for something to connect, there have to be two nodal points, you know, you connect one to another. So it implies there are two distinct entities, which is actually still playing into the human and separate and different and connecting to. And you can always then break that connection again. Whereas integrate, integration is wholeness. You don't have a part of the whole. It's just simply the whole. So we reintegrate and that means to find our place again within the whole. And then the, those are, the values then flow from that place. Uh, and then everything we how we live is founded is you know is founded on that on those inherent earth based values um, and the algonquins have a great saying they they say the mind knows what's possible but the heart decides what's appropriate uh, and the and the heart you know features heavily in those in the native american 
wisdoms and traditions and values? A long answer wow. to your question. <laughs> no, but that was beautiful. Oh my gosh. It's so, uh, so eloquently said. I mean, just, I was listening to that and I was like, Maria's right. Like, I haven't thought about it from that side of things that the reintegration and essentially with the planet and be, it, it makes me think of many other things in a sense of kind of like with our egos, our default mode network tend to keep us very egocentric and very narcissistic about our place in the planet that we have dominion over the planet. Whereas reversing that instead and thinking that we are, we are integrated with the planet. And if we thought about it as a whole, our values would flow from that. And that's just beautiful. And oh. I, I actually am very in line with the whole indigenous culture and um, traditions and rituals and passages. I, I was telling my wife this the other day that I think we need to go back to some of that, you know, where we have more of a sense of transitions in life. I feel like very ancient cultures, indigenous cultures, they valued transitions in life greatly. And these celebration, celebrations or passages and ceremonies that marked the different traditions in life and different uh, points where you're moving to the next thing and honoring the environment that you're in and giving thanks to it uh, for sustenance. And I feel like because of, in many ways, our technology has pulled us from these shamanic, indigenous, spiritual elements of our of our history. I don't think that's good on many levels. And I think we play around with things like climate change and the earth as if it doesn't matter. Like, oh, you know, we'll leave that for other people versus valuing that currently and having value for our future humans versus just current people or your space with that, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, I, um, it's really nice to, to meet, you know, talk to a kindred spirit because I sometimes feel that, <laughs> you know, I, I'm a, I'm a bit of a loner, and here in my cottage in in England, um, little piece of countryside, but you know, very modest, and read and practice those. You know, I, I, uh, I have, I've always felt that deep affinity, um, and I. It's it's a you know it's been a it's been a torture in many ways, but it's also a deep blessing. Um, sadly, it becomes more and more of a pain in that uh, one. If if you are, as I I've lived, and I think some, for some reason I was born this way, I was born integrated. I never I felt more connected and more. Invo I'm using my, that word myself because it's always in the in the lexicon so readily, but. I I felt that from a very young age, you know, my all of my spirit was always recharged in the natural environment uh and with with other animals and you know staring at the clouds and it was only you know quite mature now in life and it was only in the last few years I read discovered this book it's called Borderlanders and it's written by an American um, psychotherapist called Jerome Bernstein, and he coined the term borderlander. And <clears throat> it came about because he he had you know, quite a few of the of clients that came into his into his rooms. Um, 
he would find himself bemused and bewildered by the fact that he wasn't helping them. Uh, but he didn't particularly know why, but being, as he describes himself, typically uh, you know, head-centric and, and working as a therapist, it was the problems with the client, not him. <laughs> you know, because psychotherapy is proven and evidenced and all the rest of it. So, so it can't, it wasn't him or, or the, the, the method, it was the, it was the, the client. And then he describes in his book this one particular day and he had this lady come into his rooms. He'd been seeing her for some, you know, some time. And she sat down and simply was saying to him repeatedly, it's the cows. It's the cows. You don't understand. It's the cows. You know, and she was pleading and emotional and distraught. And he, he was, you know, calling on the recesses of all his deepest parts of his practice. And what do I say now? And what do I do here? And how do I treat this particular thing? And, you know, what, what diagnosis do I give this woman? And she just kept saying, got really angry. You don't understand. It's the cows. And he said he had a final, he finally had a revelation. And he said he'd been dismissing her all the time as, oh, yes, yeah, she's projecting. You know, she's clearly projecting her own pain here and she's projecting it onto the cows. And he said, I suddenly realized she wasn't doing that. She was genuinely feeling the pain of the cows. Um, so he, he turned Called, came up with this term borderlanders and there are, he said there's a very small group of people percentage-wise in terms of his practice and the people he'd seen who live genuinely in what he calls the transrational so that's we're not fully embodied in this physical and the material world we're living within it but part of us is also inhabiting the transrational so that's the you know that means when it's beyond the rational so the rational mind dismisses anything beyond that as you know, irrelevant and irrational, mm -hmm. and therefore it's not credible. Uh, and he and they, he said, they're gen we generally feel and that transrational is in the realm of the wholeness. And so you do genuinely feel the pain of the cows. You feel you feel the earth. You feel the environment of the the natural environment you're in. You don't just see it, observe it, and give it a name and label it and analyze it. You can't help but embodied be embodied with it so he talks about those people being um you know the kind of the vanguard he said it's a painful life for them but he said hopefully they're there for example for the rest of us to to move to what you know he recognizes part of what i've articulated is this that's where we need to go to heal and restore and if we have any hope of a of a future that's you know passable in terms of an experience of being alive that that's where we have to go because earth you know we have to be restored earth has to be restored in order for us to be restored and that we need to find that way so i do i i have kind of stepped into that and i do feel this is part of my you know my purpose well actually it's probably more, only my purpose uh, which i'm moving into later in life is is to is to you know inhabit that and share and invite others through what as best I can do to articulate teach facilitate what that feeling is and how to get there um you know and, the, and I were well, quite with all humility defer to the indigenous wisdoms because they lived it you know for centuries um I'm an I'm a modern incarnation in the crazy technical technology world <laughs> mm -hmm. so um yeah yeah
How do people receive this when you talk to them about it? Is there yeah, a Darren, receptiveness? There is, and it, it sort of intrigues me. I, I haven't talked about it very much. I mean, this conversation with you is the first time, other than you know, talking to one or two friends, uh, that I've really articulated it. Where I have, I've been quite surprised as people have just said, oh, wow, that's so inspiring. Um, but it's, you know, it's literally just tent tentative, very tentative conversations. Um, but it's, it has intrigued me that, you know, in all sort of different walks of life and different types of people, it seems to resound with them, it resonates. Uh, so that's encouraging. I think so. I mean, it's, it's certainly something I've come to later in life. Um, and sometimes it just takes that, you know, as you get older and you get more wisdom and you're around other people and you start seeing the connective tissue of life mm -hmm. and each other. Hopefully you see that. I mean, some people go their entire lives and never think about or have these conversations that you and I are having right now. I mean, it happens. But you know, my goal, I've said this before on my podcast and with other people, like, I want to be more enlightened. That's my that's one of my largest goals in life is how do I move through my life and become more enlightened, more understanding, more compassionate, more gentle, um, more under just more appreciative of being alive and helping others feel alive and understand that what you're standing on is very important in terms of the earth and what you stand for is also very important. And, I, and those things can be difficult to process for people if they're in a life where it's a life of survival or it's mm -hmm. a life of a hamster wheel in a sense where the wheel is turning to just sustain everyday functions. And I think that's, Part of the suffering on our planet is we have so many people that it's hard for them to think of a larger context of things, of, of the earth, of space and time and all these things when they're just trying to get by. And so that's where I think this we kind of this mixture of governments and nonprofit organizations and, and climate change and all these things come together it's like how do we take care of our people our citizens of the planet so that they feel like they can have conversations like we're having instead of having conversations of just getting by and i think if more humans were able to have conversations about the cosmos indigenous culture how we treat each other we would be better but we have a large population of our planet that is just struggling to get by to have very basically existent, just to exist. And if we can do more than exist, then we can have much larger ideas about what it means to be alive. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting perspective. Um, and I was, I've, I can't find the title. The title's eluding me at the moment, but I have <clears throat> literally just read. Um, been immersed in this book actually on on Native American culture, and they I'd read something before in a, earlier on about the this concept of poverty, and that poverty is 
has come about with the Western industrialized complex or the, what they call the, the Western, the European mindset, is that the, the American continent before Columbus, you know, and before we colonized was an, a deeply abundant place. So they didn't know poverty and indigenous populations. And if you, if you go, you know, look at the, some of the Andam, Andaman Indians and the, the, the uh, peoples that still live, you know, untouched by Western life, their life is abundant because, and this is the point about earth in its natural, you know, state is incredibly abundant. It's a, how long is, I don't know all my, all my facts, but how long has the planet existed and has been abundant throughout that entire time? So the notion of poverty is a construct of modern man and the European mindset that was, you know, invade, conquer, colonize and consume. And it's, it's, the poverty comes in the wake of that. So, you know, if we take away that construct of what can I take and consume and have more for me and less for you, uh, you know, the competitive mindset, poverty vanishes because there's enough for all, but because earth, nature provides for all. Um and so, yeah, you're articulating there. I think what's interesting was the bit you said about, you know, the governments. Is so this idea of the 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 institutions of power and money have the responsibility to reconstruct a world that's more comfortable for us. I sort of see it the other way. It's like if we can dismantle those institutions of power. I'm sounding like an anarchist here. <laughs> Can be locked up for this now in the UK. Um, oh, don't say anything. You don't regret. You don't regret. <laughs> yeah, no, and I, I mean, in the sense of change, you know, shift the emphasis away from. Yeah, of course. We give over our power to these institutions. Is actually we own that power for ourselves, and we shape we shape the world the way we need it to be rather than the way. And it is a tiny few. You know, it's a minority of of people that hold the power and the, that power is power over all of our lives not just humans but the earth and you know my big passion stroke pain is other animals um so you know and this is where because i i'm giving you know my my purpose so the place that i always feel felt that most acutely my calling is is for other animals because they suffer horrendous lives, you know, at, at our hands. Um, work, trying to work for change in that space, you know, you hit this all the time. You hit so much. The It's the institutions of power. Um, and even organize, you know, groups of organized, passionate citizens that want to change something, ultimately it stops at that point of they don't have the actual power to make the change. You know, so most of how we we attempt to change certainly in a in a you know civilized democracy like the UK is through the power of persuasion and petition and lobbying politicians and lobbying those in power but ultimately it's those in power who make the decision we can lobby till we're blue in the face and i've you know mm -hmm. had several examples of this recently one was the you know various agricultural bill that that looked like a new hope and it was all full of this will be wonderful things for the environment in the UK 
I watched the entire four-hour debate in the House of Commons, and the arguments were, I think, pretty much you know unequivocal that the that uh, there was an amendment on the bill that should have been voted to protect certain aspects of welfare and standards of food in the UK. And on, from both sides of the House, there were politicians arguing in favour of this. But the decision was made through the voting process. And in our system here, the, gov- the, par- the party in power, the government simply whips, you know, orders their, their MPs to vote with the government line. And so they voted it down. <laughs> And that just, you know, what you were saying earlier about you give up and you despair. It's like, how, well, how do we ever make change? Is if, even if all, all of the arguments is in favour of this happening, ultimately whoever dis- is in the position of power decides. Yep. And they won't decide in our yep. favour. You know, I think this is, comes back to what, how we started the conversation, is in this modern construct, the way we live now, those institutions of power are not deciding in our favour increasingly. And you asked me about what's the political climate in the UK. It feels increasingly like they're not acting and making decisions in our favour. So who are they serving? They're serving themselves and their own interests. Yes. And actually, it made me think of that that this self-serving environment, these institutions are supposed to help help us and supposed to, but increasingly they serve money, they serve power. Yep. And, yes. and the cost of giving up power and money is huge for people. And the construct of money is, as long as you serve money and make it your number one service item, you, you are in the cult of money. You are being, that's your leader. And if that's your leader, that's who you bow to. Yeah. You'll never be doing things generally for the good of other humans. You'll be doing, you'll be serving the master of money for that. And this isn't a, a, a pushback against money for that. It's just that what's the priority in your life? And it feels like those who are in power, and it feels like I've talked to people from all over the world. It just seems like a lot of, industrialized nations, they just serve money, primarily. Governments serve money, and they serve their own interests. There's a lot of things that happen behind closed doors that the, 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 the public has no clue what happens. Yeah. <laughs> and it's this disintegration of values. That's, you know, you could have people who are in public, and they may tell you that their values are based on one thing, but the actions don't say that for that. The actions say money, power, and I don't know how, like, you dismantle that. You know, you could try to get people in place that want to work for that, but often those people end up getting into the system and become swayed by that, that, that elixir as well. You know, they start drinking that Kool-Aid hard when they get in there, um, and the machine eats them up. So it's very difficult to to think i i i have these great ideas and notions about the planet and you know about other humans and being a voice for goodness and kindness mm-hmm. but the reality of that is that gets that gives up that's very little share of the of the the viral nature of things you know when when people commit crazy acts 
their sensationalized material, people seem very, very enticed by that. They look at it, they see it, they consume it, rap like ravenously. But when you when you submit very plain, good, old-fashioned ideas about helping people, being good to your neighbors, all that stuff, it's not consumed very much. It's just, it's just not. And I don't know whether that says something about our society currently or just what it is about us innately as humans. And that we'd much rather watch, a, watch the car crash than to see somebody saved. It's, it's a weird thing about us that we, we really are like, we're like, you know, just enticed by it. We're pulled towards that light of negativity, even if we don't want to. So a good example is here in the United States is, you know, you have this very big divisive political deal. We have the election next week, the whole thing. And you have a very divisive, at least from my standpoint, a very divisive country tribalistic nature of this side versus that side, this team versus that team on that. And, and, and even if somebody says, I, I don't like Donald Trump, if somebody says, I hate Donald Trump, and, but they watch all the coverage about Donald Trump. Like, okay, if you don't like this person, why are you watching all the coverage and everything he does, every movement he makes? That doesn't make sense to me. Like, so I feel like people are pulled towards towards these things, even if they don't like it, they feel compelled to to know what's going on constantly, you know? Yeah, but I, I, I do think, you know, I, I see this as part of a, I, I agree, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, I don't want to, you know, we don't want to get down into that, maybe we do, <clears throat> you know, get down into the reality because the, I think for any, for people who do, you know, are in in that, who are like you said, enlightened. So I think the, I think that's a there's so much reveals and so much wisdom in words. If we look at the actual words, enlightened means in light. And you, <clears throat> oh excuse me, <clears throat> you you said Darren that you know you're you are constantly um, feeling that you're you want to expand and and in become more enlightened and you seek to become more enlightened which I hear is saying you seek the light you know you want to move into being having more light uh, so the very fact that we recognize light means that there is darkness we want to move towards light away from the darkness now that motivation in you, you know you've said you've talked to people all over the world and I think You've probably talked to far more people than me, but if I observe looking out and how I see the world, is that we have have this, like you said, an insatiable and as a growing insatiable appetite for what feeds that the light, the, the darkness. You know those those feelings of despair and fear and anger and um, anxiety and disregard for somebody else. Um, you know, increasing selfishness, the extinguishing of love, you know, so the, the the flame of love flickers weaker and weaker until it goes out. Uh, and that, that comes back, I think, to what I said earlier about being soulless, is when there's a void, when you open up a void, 
it will fill, if you like, with whatever has the least resistance. And it does seem that there is more effort involved in seeking enlightenment or seeking the light. And I think that's also become is becoming harder and harder because of the 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 increasing void within the human soul and i talk about that mean that collectively so if the collective human soul is a growing void it will fill with whatever has the least best i clumsy way i can say it but the least resistance and for me that's the darkness that's the things that we're pulled to that kind of feed that um feed the well i have this i have a friend who loves the term he has this term sticky monster (laughs) Mm, you know that kind of that the sticky monster the bit in you that's all the kind of the aggro the angst the you know like you said the part of us that rises to to judgment and uh, divisiveness and and distrust and dislike and ultimately hatred those things feel so easy to get into to me. I, I always say that with people like, as much as I seek enlightenment and the light, as you say, like I'm like anybody else, it's very easy for me to slip into uh, feeding the sticky monster, as <laughs> you say. Yeah, yeah. And um, <laughs> I think it's just so easy. It's so easy. It like is. it's it's just like a reflex. And yeah. so it's, I find that in my life, I, like I can speak for myself that I've had to put a tremendous amount of effort to seek enlightenment because it doesn't feel natural to me. It feels yeah. like something like, I think people like they want to be fulfilled and have joy and happiness and all these things, but it feels like it's a much more concentrated effort to have that than there is to feed the darkness or the stickiness, the sticky monster. So I think that's this weird there's this weird, uh, there's this dichotomy between this uphill battle to maintain being, seeking light, being positive, and this pull to feed the, this thing inside of us that feels very natural to gravitate towards. And I think for some people, it's just easier to feed the beast, you know, it's just easier. And it whatever is, we make easier, we yeah. tend to move towards, you know. Exactly. Yeah, that's what well, you've said it better. That's what I was trying to get at when I meant least resistance, as in it's easiest. So so where do we feel? We'll move towards something where we feel the least resistance. And that, yeah, that means it's easier to do it. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I too, I completely relate to that. It's, uh, you know, I have that... Um, I do think it comes back to though the the accessibility of these people issues things that are in our world because I know I know when I turn off the television when I don't have the television on when I well it's really you know when I when I don't listen to the news um, when those things aren't directly in front of me I don't actually think about them you know I won't intentionally then go and seek it out. So I do think this comes back a bit to what we were saying earlier is the fact, you know, with with technology now and, and so much of this being fed to us as a diet every day, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe food's a good analogy, you know, because 
as with food, we always go to what's easiest. We tend to. It takes a lot more effort to to live consciously mm-hmm. with your diet than just hey, that's tasty and delicious and easy. Um, you know, it's, we parallel that. So when those things are less accessible, I don't seek them out. Then I think that comes back to what we said. You know how we we were saying at the beginning is how is life different now and what do we what do we really miss and it comes back to that well it was peaceful then you didn't have that so many things around you that were pulling calling to sticky monster to going feed me feed me yeah. <laughs> they just yes. weren't there it's just so much easier yeah it's easier to feed it and so before it was like yeah it took a little more work in my opinion to feed that uh and now it's it's a real effort to to say, you know what, I'm going to turn this off. I'm not going to, I'm going to focus on speaking with people. It's one of the biggest reasons why I like doing my podcast, because I feel like it's pulling me towards enlightenment. I'm speaking with people like yourself regularly, and we're having these deep conversations and we're talking about things that are bigger than ourselves. And, but I'm, I'm not a fool. I know that's not happening for a lot of people. They're running on a cycle in their life. And they're running on a cycle of work, a cycle of family, and just staying afloat, um, you know, depression, all these different issues. Yeah. And that, that's kind of my whole concept is like, how do we get people where they're not just running on a cycle to keep up? They're on a, they're on a proverbial treadmill that's on the same speed, and they're just trying not to fall off of it, you know, versus, okay, I'm on this, now I'm moving forward. I'm ascending to a different version of consciousness where I can think about these larger issues going on and focus on feeding the light. I just That's just such a hard thing to do when we have so many people who are just stuck in neutral all the time. Yeah, so this is, so um, ever the, <laughs> sometimes I think, and there must be a word, what's that word for when your optimism is beyond optimism? It's it's fantastical. So I maintain the fantasy that we, no, ultimately optimistic that it is possible we can change this. Um, and I'm also a great believer in making it simpler rather than the more complicated. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how you, what you make of this. So the I come back to this thing about the head, you know, man separating from. Di- from the rest of earth. And I use that intentionally because earth, it just encapsulates absolutely everything other than the human being. Um, We decided we were better and separate by virtue of our larger brain, the neocortex. It's only one small part. And actually all science is now um, confirming what people's new centuries and millennia ago that we're not actually really that different. And even Darwin did, you know, Darwin said there was uh, just as there's a physiological continuum, there's bound to be a psychological and emotional continuum as well. So we are far more like them than we are different. Um, but the very fact that the only thing we could find to distinguish ourselves was a well, one, the divine, you know, we're made in the divine image, but secondly, that we were capable of self-awareness and rational thought. This was Descartes saying, mm-hmm. I think therefore I am. And that that effectively elevated the the human mind, you know, the brain. And if you think, if you, I, I kind of am sort of trying very gently to to open 
people's eyes to this of how completely obsessed we are with our brains and the mind um and you know the rational and what coming back to what you talked about value so it seems to me what we value primarily is the power of the human mind because technology comes from you know the human mind what we can dream up and invent and create and when we see ourselves doing all these fantastical things you know the great these technologies we we invent and we can put men in on other planets that feeds continually feeds this idea of superiority by virtue of our mind and our brain you know and everybody's obsessed with brain performance and well personal performance in the sense of the brain this is a long answer i'm coming back to your first point your question that's okay um yeah yeah so so the to me that leads to a neurosis where and i of of the mind is all powerful or seeing or knowing therefore the mind must solve this problem so we've got to get come up with clever solutions well what where i i lost my mind you know this was my story of of um, serious problems with depression, anxiety, breakdowns. Um, and I literally faced a moment of losing my mind where it was madness is just there. And I could, it felt really appealing. It felt really appealing to go, I could just go mad. I could actually just step into that. It's just there. And I won't have any of these problems anymore because my mind will just go to a completely different place that is totally gone from this reality um, needless to say I didn't choose it I thought well actually no that's really very terrifying I'll stay where I am um, but I'd I'd I only was thought I had my mind to mend me solve me sort out all my problems and they were you know they were deep and complex and had basically disabled me it was it was knowing that my mind couldn't do that or or shouldn't do that somehow I don't know quite remember now I have to sort of track back where I found this insight but it was when I stepped away from the mind and and relinquished my mind that I went into a different state and I, I knew that in order for me to heal there was nothing that somebody you know another person could do with their mind or my mind that could solve these problems and fundamentally heal and restore me and I found there that there was a there was the wholeness of me and that the center of that wholeness is the heart and that when you know rebuilding myself as a whole person with the heart at the center it is an antidote to that void. So when you live in that, when, when as I live now, heart-centered, it feels like a, it's like an immunity. It has sort of given me an immunity to sticky monster. Um, and I, you know, in the past, I was someone who's, I had huge difficulty with emotional regulation, you know, and I'd have things in life would flip me out into this place of just, I almost call it, you know, frantic uh, rumination about a problem and just turning it over and over and over. And I believed if I kept turning it over, if I kept putting my mind to it, I would somehow find a way out of this problem, you know, this, that this person or this relationship or this situation had, had caused. And, 
it would all be fine. And it wasn't. I just stayed locked in that loop of feeding my monster, my own sticky monster. I don't do that anymore. I literally, it just doesn't happen. Um, and even now, you know, many years on, I think kind of, I'm so different. I live so differently. And it's a, it, it is a wonderful place. And it, I do feel that this shift, if we, we collectively, and it is very simple to do, we shift from this head madness and we find our wholeness again and we go to the heart and we live from there, we will instinctively recalibrate and then make different choices, value different things. Um, and you're not drawn to sticky monster because I think that void that we were talking about comes from the death of the soul so that all you have is this, you know, crazy separated head <laughs> that has just gone collectively mad. I told you it was a long answer. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> no, Maria, you uh, you have... Yep, really, I think the listeners are going to, one, it's very meditative listening to you, by the way. Oh. Um, I felt myself getting into like a trance listening to you talk. I'm like, this is very relaxing. Um, cool. That's good. <laughs> um, I don't know if anybody's told you that, but that's there's some wavelength about you speaking. I don't know. But uh, you say things very beautifully. Um I could talk about this for a long time. We definitely have synergy, but uh, yeah. our time is up. And um, I'm really grateful that you came on. Uh, this was awesome. Thank you. Yeah, Darren, thank you so much. I'm just, you know, I'm grateful to Amy for the introduction as well. Give a shout out for Amy yeah. Waterman who introduced us. So that was lovely. Uh, and it has been an absolute delight and pleasure to, to spend this hour with you. Awesome. We will be in touch and you have a good day. Lovely. And you, Darren. Bye for now. So let me ask you something. How do you get your news? Because I know you want to stay informed with what's going on here in the world. There's so much going on on a regular basis. And it's something that's been a problem for me personally. And I've been searching and searching and searching. And finally, I found a news source that I think all of my listeners are going to love. It's called The Donut or the dose of news useful today. The founder and CEO, Peter Nowak, is a good friend of mine, and when he turned me on to it, I was just blown away. Finally, a daily news source that delivers succinct and factual news about all the world's occurrences, and it's an easy access to finding things that you just want to get information about. And it also serves up a lot of positive news stories that you won't hear anywhere else. It's your daily reminder that there is good in the world, even if it doesn't feel like it sometimes. So get the donut, stay informed. It's 100% free. You can unsubscribe anytime. Visit thedonut.co or text donut to 66866 to sign up today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the Rate and Review section. Thanks, everyone.